My name is Rebecca Haddock and I am the Director of the Diebel Institute for Health Policy Research at the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association. Welcome to this special episode of the Health Advocate podcast presenting the inaugural John Diebel Lecture. The lecture has been established by the AAHA to commemorate the life and achievements of distinguished scholar health economist and health policy leader, Professor John Diebel. This inaugural lecture was presented by Professor Nigel Edwards, Chief Executive of the Nuffield Trust, United Kingdom, on the 18th of October, 2019, at the Australian Parliament House, Canberra. Hello everybody, welcome to this, the inaugural annual John Diebel Lecture and Panel Discussion, presented by the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association and sponsored by the Australian National University's College of Health and Medicine and Crawford School of Public Policy. Also by the Macquarie University's Centre for Health Systems and Safety Research and the Australian and New Zealand School of Government. My name is Link Therrett and I'm the Acting Chief Executive of the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association, or AWHA. Before commencing proceedings, I'd first like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal peoples who are the traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet today and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I'd also extend my respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here today. Well, today's lecture is the first in what will be an ongoing annual tribute to the life and achievements of Professor John Diebel, the father of Medicare, who sadly passed away last year. Professor Diebel's legacy is also carried on in the name of AWHA's research arm, the Diebel Institute for Health Policy Research, which was established and named in 2011. John was the Institute's patron until his death, and indeed his portrait still hangs in the foyer at the Australian Healthcare and Hospital Association, as it has for several years now. I'd also like to acknowledge the presence here today of John's daughter, Karen Diebel, and other members of the Diebel family. So, the order of events for today is as follows. We'll have a welcome to country from Selena Walker. Selena is a Ngunnawal woman, local artist and former ACT Bernardo's Mother of the Year. Next, Dr Rebecca Haddock, Director of the Diebel Institute for Health Policy Research, will briefly speak about Professor John Diebel and his legacy. Then, Professor Joanna Westbrook, Director of the Centre for Health Systems and Safety Research at Macquarie University, will introduce Professor Nigel Edwards from the UK's Nuffield Trust, who will give today's Diebel Lecture. It is now my great pleasure to introduce Selena Walker. As I mentioned previously, Selena is a Ngunnawal woman, an artist and former ACT Bernardo's Mother of the year. She's also a drug and alcohol outreach worker at the Gugan Gulwan Youth Aboriginal Corporation here in Canberra. Selena, if I could ask you to come, come and join us. Thank you. Well, good morning, ladies, gentlemen, and distinguished guests. As stated, my name is Selena Walker, very proud Ngunnawal woman from here in Canberra, also the very proud granddaughter of Aunty Agnes Shea, which many of you probably know or seen. She's a little old black woman, but she does get around, so if you haven't seen her yet, keep an eye out for her because you can't miss her. I want to start by acknowledging any other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that are with us, and my Uncle Chris as well. Welcome my brothers, sisters, aunts and uncles. I'd like to extend that to all our non-Indigenous friends that have joined us. Welcome. I also want to pay my respects to my elders, past and present, and extend that to all elders from other tribes that might be with us here. Welcome. The Ngunnawal community are the traditional custodians of Canberra and the region. You may not be aware that the Ngunnawal Nation is made up of several family groups and not just individuals who represent this country. Therefore, as a community, we have an elected body known as the United Ngunnawal Elders Council to represent us, along with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elected body of the ACT. This is important for you to understand and acknowledge, for our identity is a collective identity. There are other Indigenous and non-Indigenous people from around the nation, the country and the world who have come to live on Ngunnawal land. I would like to acknowledge and welcome you all. The tradition of welcoming the people to country is a practice that was handed down by our ancestors, old people and elders from the beginning of time. 
Before entering another person's country, you would first announce your arrival and not enter until a traditional owner formally welcomed you. The reason for this practice was to protect your spirit whilst in another person's country and also to show respect for the country which you were entering. It's wonderful to see that this practice is now recognised and respected. I suppose it's not like entering into someone's home unless you're first invited. The Ngunnawal people, as within all Aboriginal people, have a great heritage that we would like to share with all Australians from every walk of life. As you are aware, Canberra means meeting place and Canberra has been a place of gathering for many Aboriginal tribes of Australia to come together to deal with important business and also for ceremonial purposes. Our Ngunnawal ancestors believed in the importance of people gathering to build relationships, share knowledge and to celebrate the gift of heritage and history. We believe it's important for all to recognise our unique history and again an understanding that our land is our heritage and how lost the land has disconnected so many Aboriginal people from their spiritual links, cultural heritage and identity. So on behalf of my grandmother, Aunty Agnes Shea, I'd like to thank you for inviting me here this morning to do the Welcome to Country. Well done to the organisers and I wish you well for the rest of the event. And I will now finish in the words of my people, the Ngunnawal people. Yumalandi Yunanga Yerubu Yangu, which means you may live footprints on our land now or in other words, welcome to country. Thank you very much. Enjoy the day. Well, thank you, Selena, for that warm welcome and kind words. It is now my pleasure to introduce Dr Rebecca Haddock. Dr Haddock is the director of the Diebel Institute for Health Policy Research, which, as I mentioned earlier, is named after Professor John Diebel. Rebecca will speak about Professor Diebel and his life achievements as a distinguished scholar, health economist and health policy leader. Thank you, Link. It is a pleasure and indeed an honour to be speaking to you today about Professor John Diebel, who sadly passed away last year at the age of 87. John, in partnership with Professor Dick Scotton, conceived the idea of a compulsory national health insurance scheme based on the principles of universal coverage, equity of access and payment according to one's means through the taxation system. Sadly, we received notice that a little over two weeks ago, Dick Scotton has also died aged 88. If one was to describe John in a single paragraph, it would go something like this. Professor John Diebel was co-architect of Australia's first universal health system, Medibank, and an integral part of its reintroduction as Medicare in 1984. His expertise lay in being able to think innovatively about big issues while never losing sight of the humans who were affected by them. He was a conceiver, implementer, and defender of universal healthcare for nearly 50 years. Such skills and insight do not come overnight, but are built on strong practical and theoretical foundations. And John did the hard yards in health from coalface to theory and back again. He worked in a bank, then had a short stint in the Navy, as well as completing a commerce degree. He also worked as assistant manager at the Peter McCallum Cancer Institute, where he was in charge of finances. And it was during this time it troubled him that people refused to undergo cancer treatment because they could not afford it. So he returned to university to study hospital costs and gained a diploma of hospital administration from UNSW. In 1965, John secured a position at the University of Melbourne, where he met Dick Scotton and the idea of compulsory public national health insurance scheme based on the principles of universal coverage took hold. The story of how John Diebel and Dick Scotton, encouraged by Gough Whitlam and Bill Hayden, developed the original Medibank proposals from the mid to late 1960s onwards has been told many times. But less well known are the two and a half years of implementation battles, including rejection in the Senate three times, a double dissolution election, and the eventual passing of the legislation in a joint sitting of both houses in 1974. John proved to be much more than an ideas man. He could also nurture, develop, implement, and defend an idea. He was dogged and courageous in the face of hostility and criticism, but as became his hallmark, always playing the issue, not the person. Medibank was finally delivered in July 1970 and for the first time, everyone could have free access to a public hospital as a public patient. However, not long after, Medibank was progressively dismantled by the Fraser
Theresa government and John moved on to other things. But in 1980, sensing a possible change in government, John strategically teamed with Neil Blewett, then Shadow Minister for Health, and on the 1st of February 1984, they were able to make the Universal Healthcare Phoenix rise again as Medicare. John remained active in health policy into his 80s, and while time does not permit me to go into the details, it is worth noting that John was more than an academic. Dick Scotton put it this way when talking about the original Medibank scheme. A key part of John's role was to be a roving ambassador, forever seeking ingenious compromises and innovative ways in which the transition to new ways of doing things might be smoothed. In this, he experienced some successes and along the way learned a lot about human frailty and deviousness. He retained his characteristic optimism throughout. So ideas, hard yards, lived experience, persistence, ingenious compromise, doggedness, courage, commitment, empathy, kindness, decent statistical information, humanity, play the issue, not the person, and optimism. These are the lessons that John Diebel offers us for successful health reform and implementation in Australia. Let me conclude with the words of the Honourable Bill Hayden, who wrote to us on the occasion of John's death. He said, and I quote, you will recall the old blinkered quip, if all the economists were laid end to end, they would never reach a conclusion. Well, nothing was further from the truth in the case of John and his scholarly colleague, Dick Scotton. Thank you, John. Everyone in Australia today has the world's best access to health services because of your efforts. I am grateful and indebted to you. I will miss you. It is now my pleasure to introduce Professor Joanna Westbrook, who will be moderating today's lecture and panel discussion. Joanna is Chair of the Diebel Institute for Health Policy Research Advisory Board and Director of the Centre for Health Systems and Safety Research at the Australian Institute of Health Innovation, Macquarie University. She is internationally recognised for her research evaluating the effects of information and communication technology in healthcare. Joanna. It is really a delight today to be able to introduce our keynote speaker, Nigel Edwards. Nigel Edwards is CEO of the Nuffield Trust. Um, prior to this, he was an expert advisor with KPMG's Global Centre for Excellence for Health and Life Sciences, and he's also been a senior fellow at the King's Fund in England. Nigel was policy director for the NHS Confederate for 11 years and clearly has an enormous amount of experience in health and social care. He has a strong interest in models of care, but as I'm sure his talk will demonstrate, he has a really keen interest on understanding how policy is enacted on the front line. He's a well-known media commentator. He's often in the spotlight and I know that we can rely upon him to be uh, very provocative today. He has published extensively and, you know, looking at many of his publications, there's some fantastic titles, Why Doctors Are Unhappy, The Future of the Hospital and Doomed to Repeat, Lessons from the History of NHS Reform. So I know the way in for some interesting discussion. In 2015, he was listed by the Health Service Journal, which has been going since 1895, as the 42nd most influential person in the English NHS. If you happen to be looking for a really comprehensive summary of what is happening in health policy in 2018, Nigel has this fantastic comprehensive report which runs from mortality rates to AI, which is available on the Nuffield Trust uh, website but also on his Twitter account and I'd highly recommend it. Nigel is currently working internationally. He's working with the WHO Regional Office for Europe and the European Observatory on Health Systems and Policy on Development across Europe, as long as England remains part of Europe. And he provides advice to many countries about their health systems, uh, particularly developing countries from Iraq to the Ukraine. So we are extremely fortunate that he's able to join us here today to really put health policy under the microscope. Please join me in welcoming Nigel Edwards. Thank you for the honour of asking me to give this inaugural lecture. It really is a great honour. 
So my topic is policy blunders and maybe how to prevent them. These themes here, and my experience in, in the UK and Europe, are going to really challenge us to think about health policy and its implementation in a number of very important ways. I'm going to use a case study drawn from a, a major policy failure in the English NHS um, and then perhaps uh, use that to, and other insights to illustrate some of the things that go wrong and then make some suggestions about what we can do to improve this process. And I'm going to argue that we talk a lot about getting policy into evidence, but in fact this is a much more complex and difficult process than we normally acknowledge, and that there's a really important role for policy intermediaries like the Diebel Institute and the AAHA who can work to, tra to translate policy, and in particular to challenge some of the preconceptions and assumptions that people make, uh, clarify the questions, uh, synthesising the evidence uh, in helpful ways, understanding the difference between theory and practice, but actually also getting a diversity of voices, views and opinions into the policy process, which is too often really inward-looking. And I think this is more necessary than ever, partly because of the nature of politics in many countries, but also because of the growth of complexity, uh, the increased velocity with which things seem to be happening and other changes in the world that we're living in. So, uh, first of all, case study. This quote, the meaning of this will become evident as we go on. Let me introduce you to Andrew Lansley. Here he is in 2012. He is the uh, policy wonk who found himself in power as Secretary of State and provided over a real textbook failure, which you will see is, seems to have taken it out of him uh, rather. So let me take you through just very briefly, because other people's systems are pretty boring, but this is really quite a good story. He became Secretary of State in 2010. He spent an unprecedented six and a half years as opposition spokesman and had come up with a plan really uh, sui generis in his own head. Uh, no one quite knew where these ideas came from and we were totally unclear who he was listening to informing them. But his idea was to boost the NHS's quasi-market, give GPs the power to commission work and put them in groups to do that and then put much more emphasis on choice competition um, and in price competition indeed. And, and he simplified the system and of course like all good politicians uh, get rid of bureaucracy they all say that. And as part of this, he was going to try and remove ministers from the day-to-day -day running of the health service and create two arms-length bodies, one as an economic regulator for providers and the other to do commissioning, uh, so the ministers would step back. He'd also continue the half-finished project of making hospitals more autonomous and bring the private sector in in a much bigger way. He did this in 2007 and then sort of kicked back. He didn't do anything else. He didn't uh, do an implementation plan and he didn't provide details because the system was effectively an axiom, like a mathematics. It was a set of axioms from which you could work out how the policy would work. He didn't feel the need to fill in the detail. So the 2000 election came. Conservatives were leading in the polls, but they'd worked out that uh, if you give technocratic story about market reform in the healthcare system, you're likely to alarm the electorate or bore them, or possibly both. So they talked about choice, they talked about cutting bureaucrats, and uh, David Cameron said that basically the whole debate on the NHS was we're going to cut the deficit, not the NHS. This spawned a, a little bit of uh, naughtiness on the internet. I'm cutting the NHS, not the deficit. Some people thought this is going to hurt don't worry you won't feel a thing and perhaps less insightful but quite rather to the point but that gives you a feel for the overall level of debate and talking in these general populist generalities was a pretty sensible electoral strategy frankly so it meant there was very little scrutiny of what the proposals were and it's pretty clear his cabinet colleagues hadn't got a clue what he had in mind either it didn't help that the man was prickly defensive and not very open to any kind of challenge I had many very difficult conversations with him where his response usually started well yes but it's obvious this is how it's going to work. Well, it, very unusually in 2010, the election, we ended up with a coalition election. But in those discussions that you have to form a coalition government, it seemed that health almost got forgotten. It was relegated to the last thing they talked about. It was a hot afternoon, everyone was tired, and the coalition agreement that came out really reflected that. It was totally unimplementable. And Lansley kind of just ignored it and got on with being Secretary of State. Now, the government was in a great hurry. They'd abolished much of the machinery that they'd used internally to scrutinise policy proposals. 
Uh, his cabinet colleagues didn't understand it. And number 10 had, was very laissez-faire, if not actually lazy, in terms of its scrutiny. So he, they thought the action was all in education and welfare. And they were horrified when they discovered the size of what Lansley was proposing. A combination of his reforms and economic pressures that the NHS was under at that moment created a logic in which a huge reorganisation actually started, despite the promise that had been made during the election that there would be no more top-down reorganisation, no more unnecessary top-down reorganisations, which rather assumes that previous politicians had done reorganisations were unnecessary. No one thinks that, surely. But anyway, this promise rapidly was undone. And in fact, when the chief executive of the NHS appeared in front of the Health Select Committee and was asked about the reorganisation, he said, it's so big you can see it from space. So he'd failed, really, at the first hurdle of meeting his, his promises. He thought he got the BMA on board, the British Medical Association. Well, uh, those of you who dealt with medical trade unions will know that that's a very dangerous assumption. And indeed, that unravelled very, very quickly. If you've got one GP's opinion, you've got one. If you're lucky, you've got one. And they split between the specialists and the GPs. And there was a great deal of opposition. The politicians got very nervous about the idea of £80 billion of public money being handed to independent contractors with virtually no accountability or oversight. And there was a big pushback from people who feared uh, privatisation. And the Treasury thought... This is going to mean that we're going to lose the grip on the money, which is already tenuous. We're under great pressure. And in the words of one of his colleagues, Lansley managed to unite both the Luddites and the reformers against his proposals. Nursing Trade Union held a vote of no confidence, 98% vote against him. Um, he went up to see them. He didn't meet the main Congress. He met a little group, a selected group. And he issued this phrase, which I'd like to come back to. He said, uh, I'm sorry if what I'm setting out to do has not communicated itself. So uh, David Cameron finally intervened. There was a pause. They got a panel of the great and the good to look over the policies and they inserted back into the proposals much more oversight accountability they toned down the competition and price competition components and they put more emphasis on integration but what was left was a mess frankly it wasn't what Lansley had envisaged and the minute the bill had been passed a reasonably respectful time had elapsed he was demoted to a more junior cabinet position and that was the end of his involvement in health well this is the NHS structure. You judge how much that was simplified. That's after. Right? I don't need to read it. You just It's a gestalt thing. You just look at it. You can see. I'm sometimes asked to explain this to foreign visitors. I say, just don't bother, because it's never going to survive. And indeed, it isn't. It's being unraveled as we speak. As is the case with many large, complex organisations, unless you really break it, it does have a tendency to sort of, like those memory materials, pop back into the structure that it previously occupied. So it even failed to break the system. I mean, that was it even failed to do that. It's been working around the Act, ignoring the legislation where it thinks it can get away with it, and there's new legislation proposed to put the economic regulator and the provider and the commissioning bodies back together again. And the number of managers, well, the bureaucrats did fall, but as you can see, they've come back again. So, pretty comprehensive failure, really, but fortunately for us, very instructive. And let's go through a few of the lessons on policy design. I'm going to bring in a few other choice adventures in English and a couple of cases European foreign policy, health policy, as we go through. Okay, so the first issue is about policy design. So rational choice theory of policy, uh, which has pretty much been superseded, I think, by theories that acknowledge banded rationality, in which not all options are considered and policymakers satisfy rather than optimise. We kind of recognise that. Lanz's problems go beyond that, really. They're not that uncommon, which is he had in his mind a sort of a conceptual model. And we've got nothing against models, obviously. All models are flawed, but some are useful. And so the 
the first step we need to ask ourselves is, is the model useful? I think his wasn't. And the reason is this. It was developed in a different time, a time of prosperity. It was implemented during austerity. It was drawn from his experience privatising telecoms and energy utilities. Not an immediate read across to health, you would have thought, and you'd be right, that's turned out. So the model was simplified and incorrectly adapted. This is a similar problem uh, when we start using examples from other countries and from history. We quickly run into the problem of path dependence. This is Karl Marx's uh, definition of path dependence, which is the choices you made in the past constrain the choices that you need to, uh, to make in the future. And it's a pretty powerful driver of policy. And I think there's, there's a good argument that the Dutch approach to health reform, which has been very conscious of those path dependencies and therefore has avoided the wild swings of some other countries, is behind some of the success the Netherlands have had in reforming their healthcare system. So the neglect of context and history often leads to bad ideas being resuscitated or borrowed from elsewhere and applied in situations where they're unlikely to work. And it's also worth checking that this great idea that's come from Sweden or wherever actually does really work even in the context in which it's being operated. That's not always the case. Policymakers in large systems have the additional problem that their systems are so heterogeneous, the starting points of different systems are different and they have layers of different policies layered one on top of the other, which means that it's quite tricky to put one policy, a cookie cutter policy, on that without causing problems. You design the policy for the average, which means it fits in places which average, which is therefore almost nowhere. And even worse is the tendency and temptation to design the policy for the worst bit of the system, which means everyone else is held back because of the way the policy is designed. Poor conceptualization of policy is also an issue. It's quite common to find logic models in which the boxes and arrows don't really connect in ways that are supported by evidence. And here a miracle happens bit of the process which converts the evidence into outcome. There's also an issue about the way that many policymakers have tended to conceptualise problems about being failures of incentives, structures or rules when they may be more about culture, behaviour and relationships and therefore some way out of reach of most policy instruments. They also tend to assume that people will react in the way that a policy predicts rather than perhaps optimising or following their own objectives or having so many policies to balance that they have to kind of filter it and prioritise. An attempt at temptation in situations which is very complex is also to oversimplify in conceiving the policy, ignore heterogeneity in the other problems I've just listed and strip off many of the subtle qualifications and caveats which the evidence brings you which is likely to make your policy work. They're stripped away and you're left with something that doesn't really work. The other simplification is to use your own personal experience as the Minister for Health to assume that your experience is like that of every other 50 odd million people. There's also an issue about framing. It's quite tempting to frame problems in ways that are helpful to selling the policy. For example, we have to close hospitals because of issues about quality and safety. Policymakers have tended to ignore the problem that first of all the evidence on which the framing is based is often contested as it is in that example I've just given you. Stakeholders may have a different way of framing the problem. Well actually I'm prepared to trade travel times for quality. I'd rather have something near than necessarily good. But they may also just not simply believe you, uh, particularly in our system where increasingly politicians are not really trusted. Too many objectives. So a big problem is the policy gets mission creep. I mean policymaking theory recognises the problem of trade-offs between objectives but we often find that they're created in ways which create multiple objectives. The UK is particularly prone to this. If you look here, these objectives for the DRG payment system in England, it's more objectives than any other DRG system in Europe had. They normally had two. We had all of these. You'll notice that it contains two contradictory objectives. One is to increase admissions, elective admissions, and the other is to decrease emergency admissions using the same instrument. Go figure. A spoiler alert, it didn't work. So this sort of Christmas tree policy also happens because you have policy entrepreneurs, policy leads within the Department of Health or within government who are competing to get their particular policy into the system. So we saw that, for example, civil servants responsible for particular disease areas trying to get a quality incentive into the DRG payment system or into the GP's quality and outcome framework incentive scheme, leading it to become bloated and pretty 
unmanageable. So you end up actually ruining your policy by having too many objectives. This has also bedeviled the search for the right size of commissioning organisation. They've got so many objectives. If they're too big, they can't really talk to primary care sensibly. If they're too small, they can't have any leverage over hospitals and they don't have any sufficient expertise to do the job. Well, even if you get all the rest of that right, there's still further opportunities in terms of poor design. I vividly remember the Deputy Chief Executive of the NHS coming to a meeting of CEOs I'd organised and the Secretary of State announced, quote, radical plans to allow the private sector, charities and universities to take over the management of England's failing hospitals. He called the idea franchising. The day after, the Deputy Chief Executive came to this group and said, hey, we've made this speech about something called franchising. Have you any idea what it is? To which the response was, well, he's your minister. What does he think it is? So what happened then was that the civil servants had to retrofit the policy to the nature of the announcement. Unfortunately, nobody had given enough detail to constrain them so that they could actually do something reasonably sensible with it. Unfortunately, it was also another example of what Mary Dixon Woods calls cargo cult in the context of quality improvement, but it also fits here, which is the replication of the external appearance of something, but without managing to actually copy the active ingredient that makes it work. So they call it franchising. It's got some elements that look like franchising, but it's nothing like what McDonald's do. The other problem was it was a solution looking for the problem. It's by no means clear that the problems of these hospitals were due to poor chief executives or poor top management. And in many cases, changing the top management made no impact on their performance at all. The problem was in the rest of the system. So we're back to the do the diagnosis, right? But solutions looking for a problem is definitely part of the story here. So another element of the poor design process and far too common and a particular issue in the Lansley debacle is failure to elicit or listen to feedback, particularly from wider groups of stakeholders beyond the usual suspects or those people that you think will agree with you. This thing is often associated with selective use of the evidence, sometimes called policy-based evidence, where you find evidence that supports your policy rather than look at the evidence and work out your policy. It's distressingly common in many countries that I've worked in. So, for example, in the assumption that out-of-hospital care is cheaper, you see some really interesting wishful thinking and groupthink. Out-of-hospital care is cheaper if the alternative is building a new hospital. It's not cheaper if you've still got the hospital and all the fixed costs that are in it. That level of subtlety gets stripped from the argument and we're left with the simple, largely misleading policy ideas stuck in the head of ministers and other policymakers. And that type of group thing gets worse when you don't have the type of scrutiny that we ought to have had when Lansley brought his proposals through. And this actually is a common feature of British policy failures. There's a great book by um, Anthony King and Ivor Crew called The Blunders of Our Government, which has a really long list, I'm afraid. But I think probably with some justification, point to the problem of scrutiny by PowerPoint, which tends to oversimplify, obscure the issues and even to brainwash people. So I like this quote, PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. Although the irony is I'm using PowerPoint to present that to you. The most obvious and probably rather trivial design problem in many ways comes from the short political cycle. But we found actually even changes of ministers within governments is a problem because they're in such a hurry, they want quick wins, and most of them are not prepared to take the time to get involved in the messy realities or the careful design and the long-term change that successful policy implementation requires. But lots of policy survives this process, and it's not all bad. We've had some very good success with some well-designed policies, but there's still further things along the way that get in the way of this. So if you manage to avoid that, what are the hazards in the way? Well, perhaps the most significant issue, certainly Lansley faced, but also the last two big plans, which while they were streets ahead of Lansley in terms of conceptualisation and quality of thinking, still suffered from the problem that they lacked any sort of narrative that wasn't very technocratic, really abstracted from the experience of frontline staff, used language and concepts which didn't mean very much to them, didn't explain what you needed to do 
do to implement things and gave you very little clue about how your life would be different after these things would be implemented. Perhaps even worse, and perhaps because of this problem, they lacked any sort of theory of change. So actually, back to this quote here. This is Lansley, again, if you remember. If your policy relies on it communicating itself, you're already lost, right? This is a multi-layered, very complex problem. So this failure to communicate the benefits, the case for change, and what needs to be done is really common. And it really relates to a problem with the overall theory of change. What are we actually relying on to make this happen? Quite a lot of the policy does not seem to have a very clear theory of change. Is it markets? Well, not really. We're abandoning them. Is it managerial command and control? Well, quite a bit of it is, possibly. Is it intrinsic motivation and professionalism? Or is it, as I strongly suspect, telepathy of some sort, in which we're all supposed to know by some process of osmosis what is going on? One long-standing issue in some systems is the division of labour between commissioners and providers in the design and implementation of policy. In England, unlike other countries with a purchase-provider split, we've asked commissioners to do a very large amount of the heavy lifting in terms of the detailed design of local implementation and to get overly involved in day-to-day issues. This is pretty odd because the expertise and the management capacity to do this change is generally located in providers. And this has led to a long-standing disappointment with commissioners. But actually, it's pretty unfair because if you look at most of the rest of Europe, you don't ask the payers to get involved in the detail of implementation to quite that level of detail. And it looks like we've been trying to use commissioning as the continuation of top-down management by other means. You don't need to have a dog and bark yourself, set the providers the task of making the change and use commissioning to hold them to account for that. The other areas and problems with implementation failure are pretty familiar from any business textbook. Poor policy process and unclear leadership. Timescale. Policymakers are extremely prone to optimism bias. Complex change requires continued negotiation and often takes place in unpredictable ways and at varying speeds and people need to build new relationships and establish different ways of working and just the logistics of getting a group of clinicians together to talk about how you're going to make the change is, is often pretty challenging and there's little to be done to compress the, the time scale a particular version of this which is failing to understand the difference between issuing the policy and having it implemented I overheard a fantastic exchange in 2006-7 I guess between the Prime Minister's Special Advisor and the Secretary of State's Special Advisor so Prime Minister's Advisor says well we, well, we got the payment by results, that's an activity-based funding system. We've got competition, we've got GPs uh, doing commissioning, we just need to let it rip. To which Secretary of State's advisor said, well, yes, Julian, we've just said we've got them, that's not the same thing. Whoa, that's interesting. As a Prime Minister's advisor, perhaps not spent too much time in the LSE. So the list goes on. Insufficient resources. Much of this change does take double running, particularly when you're changing models of care. Not very easy to develop one model and switch off the other one at the same time without having some ability to run them in parallel. The resources for that are often not in, in place. And the organisational development and change management capability of many organisations being asked to implement changes are often relatively limited and they have limited bandwidth for the number of policies that we tend to throw at them. In every system I've worked in, the regulatory and payment system is pointing in a different direction from the direction you want to go in. And if you're unlucky and you're in particularly Eastern Europe, you've written that into some fundamental law or bit of the constitution that you can't change. I'm sure you do nothing like that here, but other countries have suffered from this. The problem of layers of policy, which go one on top of the other and you don't sort them out. We've got layers and layers of mental health policy which don't seem to have been tidied up and get in the way of successful implementation. We have a plethora of pilot projects uh, which we find very difficult to convert into sustainable change. 
not least because pilots, this is an issue here, but when you run a pilot, you find the best people, you give them special help, you give them special money, you protect them from the outside world, and then it works very well. And then you wonder why it doesn't work with mediocre people with no additional resources. So we've got lots of pilots that, that never get to fly. We all know about the problem of uh, unintended consequences. Isn't it funny how there are never any positive unintended consequences? I think that's because people claim that they meant to do that all along. But uh, it's almost a, a rule of policy that they will be unexpectedly powerful and unexpected as well. I think finally on this list, I would say superficial attempts to change deep culture. Many of the changes that we want really have a very deep cultural link. And a particular aspect of this, I think, is the additional challenge that comes from having a very large and powerful workforce, which has views and values which are not necessarily aligned with those of management. A political scientist called Peter Degling, he's actually Australian, did work which some of you might be familiar with, which looked at the values and attitudes of doctors, nurses and managers. And he's, he did this work in, I think, in about four continents. And he found that with the exception of China, a lot of universality in the differences between attitudes to autonomy and, and accountability. Uh, do you think you should be accountable to some third party for the work that you do? Do you feel responsibility for resource use? Do you accept the view that a clinical decision is a resource in management or resource allocation decision and that that matters and you should be thinking about it. Attitudes to team working and the distribution of power and willingness to adopt systematised work processes. He published an edition of the BMJ. Nurses, managers and doctors are on different parts of this map when you plot those dimensions, but basically in different parts of the map. And notice here that medical managers, who are a key part to the implementation of almost any policy you want to do, are in a rather awkward no-man's land between the doctors and the, the managers. And they tend to snap back to the doctors if things get particularly difficult. People with quite different views and alignments in our system. The good news, I have to say, is that there is some convergence, that people are coming together. The managers are less stuck in one place and the doctors are less stuck and other people are beginning to move together. So that's helpful, particularly, as I say, because of the importance of clinical leadership in making this all work. Other problem, I think, is complexity. There's pretty much agreement now, isn't there, that healthcare is a complex adaptive system, which has got pretty high levels of interconnectedness. I like this way of framing it. So on the y-axis here, we've got the extent to which there is agreement on the objectives that we're trying to achieve. And on the x-axis along the bottom, we've got the extent to which we are certain about the causality that if we do A, we'll get B each time. So down the end of the x-axis, sometimes when we do A, we get nothing or B or C or D. But when we're down at this end, we do A, we get B. So for example, if you're in the top right-hand corner, we might put, say, are you fighting a war on drugs, which is framed as a problem of criminality, or are you dealing with a health and addiction and social problem, in which case your framing is, we're going to legalise it and see what happens. Okay? So we don't agree on causality or on objectives. And we're in a zone of chaos, really. High certainty and high agreement. Uh, so a simple clinical guideline, for example, would be in that box. If you've got low agreement and high certainty, well, we all agree that hyperacute stroke units do save lives. We're probably not agreed on which of our hospitals is going to get it. Okay, so there's an element of uncertainty about what we're agreeing on. And high agreement, low certainty, well, we all agreed that we should be integrating care, but we're pretty unsure about actually how to achieve it. Unfortunately, many of the issues that we face in healthcare are in the middle of this map. And that while simple command and control and, and simple types of instruction type policymaking works pretty well in the sort of blue area here, there's a whole range of tools in the middle which require incrementalism experimentation, muddling through. It feels a lot messier and a lot more difficult and quite uncomfortable for policymakers because you can't say, if you definitely do this, you'll definitely get this result for most of the things that we deal with. And even for some of those things that are in that relatively rational where we know what to do, like my stroke example or who's the trauma centre or where's the cancer surgery going to be done, the situation becomes very political very quickly. And policymakers have often taken the wrong lessons, therefore, from policies that worked. So, for example, the UK has had great success in reducing 
bacteremia, bloodstream infections from C. difficile and MRSA. And they did this with a bundle of about 40-odd relatively straightforward interventions that you put in place. And the, the characteristic of these was generally they didn't disrupt the workflow of the clinicians. And in some cases, for example, putting all the material for a central line in one box, they may make it actually easier. It had virtually no interaction with other parts of the system. In fact, when it did, it made their lives less difficult. For example, stopping junior doctors taking so many blood cultures. So they were really quite a simple recipe. So they then tried to replicate that model for reducing weights in the emergency department. Guess what happened? We're still waiting. Uh, so it's easy to situate yourself in the wrong part of this map. So this calls for a different repertoire from leaders and policymakers and different parts of the system on different parts of this map over time. These problems are exacerbated when you get very big systems for reasons I mentioned earlier, which is big systems with lots of heterogeneity and lots of interconnectedness. Centralization means you uh, really cannot tune your centrally directed policy when quite a lot of the people are in zone five. So what to do about this? Well, my argument here is that there's a very important role for what I might call policy intermediaries, people who can rigor and the idea of evidence-based policy. The problem is that actually when you go and look at what civil servants and policymakers do is that their processes are much less than we imagine about reading you know, policy documents and research they do do that but they're also engaged in building connections to make things happen there's a great PhD study by Joe Mabin in the UK who followed civil servants around and found that they were building connections rather than really focusing on technocratic problem solving but the good news is I guess is in a number of countries the use of evidence has improved and organisations that sit between the world's research policy making and management practice can play a very important role in making the translation between these different domains and this is particularly useful where there are risks of groupthink or where the evidence is difficult to interpret so my sort of shopping list of the things that we might ask them to do are, well, we've mentioned one of these before, asking better questions and doing better diagnosis. There needs to be better, more rigour in testing the questions being posed and in particular watching for the easy emergence of groupthink and the same process in terms of being critical about thinking about solutions that use the evidence. Now, one of the problems here, and it's really illustrated by the Brexit debate, is that those of us who like evidence, who like using the research, who are interested in the complexity of the argument, quickly find ourselves confronted by much simpler, less cerebral and more more immediately arresting analysis that actually in many ways in terms of the public argument is likely to be much more effective. You know, cutting bureaucrats, taking back control, which is the slogan of Brexiteers, they're much more immediate, aren't they? And carefully qualified arguments are already, what's the phrase, haven't even got their pants on while the other arguments are halfway around the world. I think that's a paraphrase of Goebbels. I may be wrong. So policy intermediaries can help with that, but I think when we've got these highly polarised identity-based policy debates based on feelings rather than facts, do seem to be a feature of quite a lot of today's politics. The answer aren't really easy. So how do we avoid the simple trumping, no pun intended, the complex? I hope we can we discuss that later because I don't really have a very good answer. I'm more positive, however, that we need much more diversity of disciplines. We need more political science, sociology, geography, anthropology, organisational psychology in political debate. We need those different lenses that those bring. But the policy intermediaries can help because, I have to say, some of those disciplines need help explaining what they're saying to anyone who's not in their discipline. Political science is a particular problem. They seem to write for other political scientists, it's quite hard to understand often what they say and it's even less clear what they mean. So that means a really important role for a skilled generalist who can bring all these different things together but also knows when to pull in a specialist when they need them. So diverse disciplines 
but also diverse views, particularly in multicultural, multi-ethnic countries with quite high levels of social fragmentation. Policymakers need to connect much better to wider sets of opinions about the health system from different geographies, from patients, from different groups, carers and other stakeholders outside the system. And again, policymakers, policy intermediaries can assist with this and reduce the risk of the usual suspects always being brought in every time to validate the decisions that have already been made. I think there's a great deal of opportunity to use history better. I'm very struck when I go to some other countries, like I was in Catalonia recently, in Canada a bit before that, how compared to the UK there are more people who can give you the 30-year trajectory of policy and understand what's happened and what went wrong and what we can learn from what went wrong. The NHS has, because of the very heavy churn in terms of reorganisation, has lost quite a lot of that organisational memory. Policy intermediary bodies can help reconstruct some of that and also provide some of this care that's required to really make the translation from, yes, it works in Sweden, but will it work here? Or, yeah, try that in 1970, it didn't work, but we know why, and if we do it now, it might. So that subtlety is really important. It's much more helpful if, at the same time we're doing policy, we actually evaluate them. Ministers in the UK are very, very reluctant to have their policies evaluated. I'm not entirely sure. They keep abolishing or trying to abolish the, the organisations that do that. We had a fantastic organisation called the Audit Commission, which did some of that sort of policy evaluation, and the Cameron government abolished it because kept saying embarrassing things about their policies. So we need to resist that temptation. Uh, we can do more experiments and tests. Because of the complexity zone we operate in, we really need to do more experimentation and trying things out. That means we need to use more action research methods rather than straight before and after or step wedge and those other types of evaluation techniques. And policymakers need to get much better about thinking about evaluation questions before they do the policy and to also do when they do do pilots to be able to distinguish when we are doing things which are about discovery what works here as opposed to prototyping which is we know what works now how do we adapt it into a model that could be used and taken elsewhere we all need better support for implementation and we need particularly better approaches to understanding context so it's all very well for me to say well context really matters but what do you do about it and there's a lot of academic literature on context and they can tend to come up with rather nice rather obvious i have to say uh, descriptions and bubbles you don't need to read them you could probably list them if i asked you paul bait commenting on this also says this is Pettigrew and Whip, by the way. The Paul Bates says, not enough known just about what happens inside the boxes, but how do these arrows, there's lots of arrows on this diagram, what do those mean? We do definitely need better ways of understanding that. Mary Dixon-Woods, who I mentioned earlier, who writes on quality improvement initiatives, makes some observations about knowledge about context, which I think is quite helpful for policymakers too. She goes to Aristotle. Well, we know about episteme and techne is knowing what we're going to do and knowing how to do it. That's all pretty straightforward. But the other two are basically, phronesis is practical wisdom learned from experience, metis is cunning, ruses, workarounds, and ways around things. Right? And we need to know about those other two things that are happening. I think phrenesis sounds much better than practical wisdom, and metis sounds much better than cunning, so that's perhaps why she used Greek. I think she's onto something quite important here. So, so getting the sort of practical street wisdom into the way that policy is both thought about and implemented seems to be really crucial. And finally, yes, your 120-page research report is fantastic. I'm sure your mum is proud. No one is, apart from me and few other people, is going to read it. At the end of your project, you spend half a day knocking together a few bullet points of basic messages. Wrong, right? You need to put vast amounts of effort into the two or four page summary of your document and write it in terminology that will be understood by someone who is not from your discipline. This is not about making you look clever, it's about selling the story. I have the most terrible trouble with the researchers in my organisation who are fantastic and in fact we've had to invest in some extremely good communication staff to help them make that bridge because we all know and there's good evidence 
confidence on this that most policymakers will not read anything. Once you're over one page of A4, you're pushing your luck. You do need to have the 128-page report because you may be asked to show you're working, but that's not where the effort should go. So a really important role for some of the material that I've seen that uh, AHAA have produced is, I think, a pretty good textbook example of how to distill very complex things into short. They could be shorter, but it can always be shorter. But this, I think, if there's one thing to argue for, it's that. So bringing all these different approaches together on my shopping list seems really important. I think it greatly increases the chances policy will work better and independent bodies that can speak truth to power or perhaps rather less grandly inject out into false certainty, remind people of the history, test the solutions, fit the problems and have the requisite level of simplicity and complexity to deal with the problem that they're trying to deal with. I think they've got a key role and a duty to speak up and avoid the temptation to be co-opted into the system which is always a big hazard. And they can also help in finding new pathways to solutions. So you may not be able to see the results of that from space, but I think it will definitely improve the experience of policymaking and implementation closer to home. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that very thought-provoking presentation, as I anticipated. We do have time for some questions from the audience. We have a roving mic available. So I just ask when you ask a question to introduce yourself before asking the questions. Judith Healy, Australian National University. Australia's healthcare system is very different from England's NHS, of course, in that it's very, very difficult to reorganise, make any change. So incremental change is the name of the game. So given your long experience with so-called reforms of the NHS, do you think that might be a good thing? I think probably, yeah. A piece of data that's often quoted in the UK, which I haven't managed to source, but sounds plausible, is that 70% of transformation efforts fail. Transformational change has got a lot of hazards built into it, particularly if the design is faulty in the first place in the way that I've been describing. So I think there's a great deal to be said for logical incrementalism if you can get it, which is like the Dutch model. And that does seem to have provided much more stability. But still, because the Dutch seem to have a long time frame in how they think about this, does seem to have still allowed transformation to happen. But the transformation is more the accumulation of small changes rather than a sort of big bang. You know, so it's more like a Darwinian evolution process. And therefore, there's more opportunity also to prune things that don't work. Whereas if you go for a big bang and create a complete new, for example, complete new set of commissioning arrangements, and then you discover you don't work, you've replicated that across the whole country and you have to unravel it. So Stephen Jay Gould talks about punctuated equilibrium and Dawkins talks about Darwinian gradualism. I would take Darwinian gradualism every time. Helena Teed from Monash University. Thank you. You made a reference to the fact that the managers and the clinicians in your system are coming closer together and definitely having visited the UK for the last 10 years each year, that's become apparent. But there's been a massive investment in capability, in leadership, in clinical leadership and in leadership in the health system yeah. and in implementation, what it means and what the workforce is. And we, we have not matched that or had yeah. that opportunity yet in Australia. So the system might be in fatigue from change, but you have a much greater groundswell up for that capability. What's your perception of that and do you think that's been part of the reason why you've got a coming together of your managers and clinicians and perhaps a more custodial sense by your health professionals of yeah, the, yeah. their role in protecting the system? That's a really good question. Yeah, no, so the, the UK, actually, and a number of other European countries have invested in medical leadership. Nurses have been more interested in leadership historically anyway, but so a lot of investment has gone in, and, and it does seem to make a difference. There's some quite good evidence that clinical involvement in leadership at change programmes at different levels produces better results. I think some of the convergence is explained by that, but I think some of the convergence is also explained by actual changes in medicine itself, about attitudes to team working, about accountability, about, you know, the growth of th things, systems such as 
revalidation clinical audit peer review, which is now much more common and absent from the early phases of Peter's work there. So I think it isn't just that we train managers, it's also medicine itself has been converging towards something that is more managerial, actually evidence-based and rational, and is more open to accountability and, and team working. It is interesting, actually, some of the, the managers, the medical managers who are most affected do come, seem to come from disciplines which are more team-based, for, for, so there are, perhaps to do with opportunities for private practice, but there are more physicians in medical leadership roles, for example, and more geriatricians than you would expect given their prevalence in the general clinical population. Uh, Kingsley Faulkner from the East Metropolitan Health Service in Western Australia. My question is your comment on the way in which the NHS was able to drive down its carbon footprint through the Sustainable Development Unit, uh, led by David Pension, oh, yeah. as a, an example, a good example of how the health system can do something useful over time, especially if it's mandated to do so by, by the government. Yes, I was involved in unit actually for some time. So there are downsides to being a very big, quite monolithic system, which is, I think, the scale sometimes overwhelms you. But there are a few occasions where you can use that muscle in quite effective ways. For example, not just on negotiation, instructing people to do things. But I think it's a bit like my point about the bacteremias. You have to choose the things you're going to instruct. And they have to be relatively straightforward and not too connected to other work processes. So there was an attempt to almost impose the use of esophageal Doppler monitoring for surgery and there were big tariffs given to try and encourage people to do that and everyone bought the machine and then put it in a cupboard to tick the box collect the money and then put it in a cupboard so you know if you try and mandate things that people are really resistant to do or in the case of the esophageal Doppler machine disrupt all their workflows require them to put another 15 minutes on the beginning of each operating session and train how to use a new piece of equipment don't be surprised if they find ways of subverting what you do you know one of the responses when you're in a big system it's quite difficult to spot them subverting it and they will do it and they're cleverer than you are is a general <laughs> lesson because just you know there's more of them so mandate something simple and in that case i think there was strong agreement about what david pension was trying to do around carbon and sustainability that concludes the 2019 inaugural john deville lecture in the next podcast a panel discussion with professor ian fraser the honorable nicola roxon and mr romley mocat reflecting on the complexities of the health system and the way we manage and set health policy in Australia. If you're interested in more of AHHA's work, you can visit the AHHA website or you can follow us on Twitter.